Worthy is your name. It's amazing that we serve a God who gives us the ability to make that choice, to serve him. The one who created us has always given us the option. And and it's beautiful just to come together in this place, believers, new and old, to sing about a God who's given us life, second chances, and to sing about his his worthiness. And so every time we come here and we join and we gather, it's, it's, it's a moment of reflection and of joy and of knowing that this, what we do here, the praise that we give, the time that we invest, this community, it's because we serve a God who is worth all of it, all of our time. This past week, um, I ended on a good one. Uh, I am, I am uh, hopeful the Miami Dolphins are on a two-game winning streak. Let's go. If there's any Dolphins fans, we are Super Bowl bound now. We've won two games. We've turned it around. I am, I am hopeful that the rest of this season is going to go well. Um, but this week for football, I'm done. We played on Thursday, so I don't have to worry about tomorrow because our game is done and over with. And we beat a pretty good team, so I was, I was pretty, pretty excited about that. In other news, I have a question that I want to start with. Um, and that question is, do we have any, any 90s kids here? And I'm not talking about like you were born in 1999 and like you consider yourself. I'm talking about like the, the majority of your childhood like was in the 90s. Because I was born in 87, but I don't consider myself an 80s kid. I, I am a 90s, a 90s kid. And I, I love the 90s just because it was part of my childhood. But I just heard on the radio that um, the 90s is officially the most trending and Googled decade of our time. Previously, it was the 80s. Everybody loved the 1980s. It was all about spandex and jazzercise and whatever else happened and rock music it was so nostalgic. People loved it. Ha- Halloween costumes, everyone wanted to dress up as some 80s person. But now, officially, this past year, it was the most trending Googled um, costume was the 90s. And it's now in fashion. It's coming back. Um, Super Nintendo is a thing. And all of that stuff that we grew up with is part of our current reality right now. And if you grew up in the 90s, you're familiar with a lot of the things um, that are happening now. But let me tell you some other things about the 90s that you, if you're not a 90s kid, you may not know about this. But if you are, you're going to, you'll probably recall some of these things. First of all, the 1990s, it was the, uh, officially when McDonald's invited America to supersize their meals. Before then, there was no supersizing your meals. Microsoft saved Apple from bankruptcy. Microsoft saved Apple. If you don't remember those days when Microsoft was actually the cool thing, that was in the 90s. Friends, any Friends fans here? Friends debuted on NBC in the 1990s. Beanie Babies shattered the world. I still have all of mine. I probably have over 100. My mom She actually saved them in a cedar chest to preserve them because one day we thought they were going to be worth a lot of money. 
and now they are Adeline and Isla's toys that they play with. So she has all of my, my Beanie Babies. So it's officially the 90s. If you remember those things, you may also remember infomercials. If you stayed at home during the week and you were at school and maybe, uh, I mean, in, in the summer and you watched TV, there were a couple things that I remember that stood out to me. The first was Hub Around. That was like the whole, if, if they, the target audience was the older generation who couldn't walk. It was this hover around, the little scooter thing that you could drive, and they had a little slogan, now I'm free to see the world. That was a big popular infomercial, getting people to buy these hover around scooters. The next thing that I remember seeing when I was a kid, and, and if there's any golfers out there, was the potty putter. It was an infomercial on TV. I wish I had the video to show you because it's hilarious about how they sold these potty putters. The next one was blow pens. Blow pens was this thing that you would actually put um, some stuff into and you would paint using a pen. You'd blow into it and you would make a drawing. Like they, if they didn't need to make anything more hazardous, this is like the most hazardous thing and I, I was reading into it that they had to recall them because kids were choking on not only the pens but the stuff they were putting inside the pens the interesting thing about all of these is as the infomercial would progress they would say for three easy payments of 1995 you can have this and if you do it in the next 10 minutes we're going to give you 10 more of what we just told you we were going to give you. And then you wonder, how much does this thing actually cost? They're going to throw in 11 of these things. I remember specifically one, one of them were these uh, spy glasses that you'd put them on and they had mirrors on each side and you could see behind you. And I remember that they were going to give you like 15 of them if you ordered in the next 15 minutes. The 90s was a time of infomercials of classic shows, iconic shows that we still watch today. And how about timeshares? Who remembers that? It's still a thing, but I remember my parents getting sucked into going to this, this pitch at a hotel about a timeshare. And they said, if you come, we're going to give you a free dinner. And I remember six hours later, my parents came back exhausted, drained. And my dad said, this was not worth a free dinner. Six hours of trying to get them to buy into this timeshare. There was another thing called the winner's circle, and I know this because my parents almost got sucked into this one too, but they didn't. And it was this multi-level marketing scheme. It was a, a um, uh, they would come and they presented your house, and at the time uh, my parents were part of this other other church with a group of people, and they were they were taking out their their retirement, putting it into this thing, and saying your money is going to multiply ten times. And um, my dad just invested a little bit of money, and when he did, soon after the company just disappeared, took all the money from all these people, and it was it was a a scheme. What's interesting about all these things is there was always a catch. Nothing was as it seemed. For some of these things, it was 1995, three easy payments, plus shipping and handling. 
I don't even know if we use the term handling. I don't even know what handling means. But it was shipping and handling. And then shipping was like $50, some, something ridiculous. But there was always a catch. And for some reason, you never knew what you were getting into on there until there was some form or level of commitment to it. We're going to be in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we have been all year. Acts chapter 14, we see a journey and an appeal that happens. And it's an appeal to follow Jesus. And there is no catch because from the very beginning, when people were called to follow Jesus, when, when their infomercial was played, they knew what they were getting into. And from the very beginning, they know that that journey though it was going to be worth it, was going to be hard. And there was going to be challenges. And people still committed to that journey. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're going to spend some time in verses 21 through 28. What has just happened, Paul has been stoned. And if we know anything about stonings, in Acts and even in the Bible, they usually doesn't have a good outcome. Typically, when you hear of a stoning, you automatically associate that with someone has just died. But here Paul does not die. There's an assumption that he is, he's dead, they've lost him, but he doesn't. He survives the stoning. Unlike Stephen, Paul survives and then there is this resurgence. There is a sudden move to push and advance the gospel even more. And in Acts 14, 21 and 22, we'll read those first two. It says this, They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. And no, no, in, right before this, Paul has been stoned. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, these small towns, strengthening the disciples, and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. After leaving Derby in the previous um, verses, they backtrack. And you think as they're journeying along, when you think of a journey, you think of just continually moving forward in a straight line, going from one place to another. But instead it says that they returned. They came back. They went in reverse. In fact, the road that they actually take, ultimately their destination was Syria. And the road that they take is the furthest possible route that they could take that was a road. It's the furthest possible way that they could take the route. The easiest route, according to maps and scripture, would have been Sicilia. Instead, they take the furthest route and they return back on the journey that they had just came from. But why? Doesn't make sense. Why would they go back and take the long way? They had stuff to do. They had a mission. They were trying to accomplish what, what Jesus had left them to do. But why, why would they take the longest route? It doesn't make sense. If you guys ever have taken a connecting flight, some of those connecting flights don't make any sense to me. Like you're going to New York, but then you have to stop in Las Vegas and then go to New York. It's not like they could stop on the way. 
But you take the longest routes, and, and, and for some reason, your flight goes from it should have been three hours to like 12 hours. It just doesn't make sense. Communities, the people of God, were not meant to live in linear patterns. They were not meant to exist in journey in a straight line. This community, you, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, your mission is not to live in a straight line and to just dash it to the end. Giving some context to what we've just read, the Christian journey was meant to be circular, was meant to maybe sometimes go in reverse, not in a straight line. If you look at evangelism, it was never intended to be straight and perfect. We bring someone to Jesus we baptize them, we prepare them with everything that they need to possibly know, every fundamental belief, every, every date, all the theology that we could pack into it. Once they do that, then they get baptized, and after that, then they're good to go. We've wiped our hands clean because they're on their journey to receiving salvation, if it only was that easy. But evangelism, the Christian walk, is messy. It goes back, it goes forward, it goes in reverse the human journey, journeying with each other, walking with Christ, requires follow-up. The value in follow-up was essential to the early church. Paul and Barnabas, they were simply concerned with establishing these new communities. So what they had done is on their journey, they've established these, these communities, these, these, these churches, believers, everywhere they went, gave their life to Christ, and, and people were added Daily. We know that from Acts as we've been reading. But it didn't end there. They knew that their work wasn't over. They had built relationships with these people and now they knew the value in the return. They knew the value in coming back and following up with the people that they had been journeying with, with the leaders of the towns and the communities that they had invested time in. It was a burden, a responsibility. That they took on and they knew that the work wasn't going to be easy. They knew that it wasn't going to be over with one word, one crusade, or one conversation. The journey to inviting others to follow Christ is a burden that we also carry upon us. The responsibility that God has given us. The people that we reach out to is something, a commitment that we make for the rest of our life. It isn't just one conversation, one crusade, or one word. It's a commitment to our community, to the people that we love, to the people that we've brought to Jesus. Paul and Barnabas and the leaders at that time knew that, and so they knew that they had the obligation to not continue plowing forward, but to go in reverse and to continue to encourage and to uplift the communities who had just began the journey to follow Jesus. Discipleship. We love that word and, and we talk about it a lot. And in fact, we're going to talk about it a lot more. If you talk to Pastor Matt, who, who he will be preaching here in the new year, more on that later. But if you talk to Pastor Matt, and even when he first got here, discipleship was such a key factor in his ministry as it should be in all of ours. But discipleship, it's, it's, a, it's a word we love to use. And we define it the best we can. But discipleship is journeying with one another. It's a process. 
It takes time to invest, to dig deep, to ask the really difficult questions. And it's not always pretty. Journeying with Jesus and with one another and having those relationships, when it goes below the surface, it can get messy. And it's a burden. It's a commitment that we take upon ourselves, that we choose in knowing that this road that we take, it may not be easy, but it's worth It's worth it. Jesus was never concerned about plowing forward, about trying to get through as much as he could in his time here. And if you want to talk about urgency and being pressed for time, Jesus had three years to make an impact on the world. Three years from his baptism till the time he was crucified to minister. But Jesus himself was never pressed for time. He was never in a rush. He made time to sit by the well, have a conversation with a woman. He took time to to remove himself from his mission, from going from one place to another. Even though the disciples sometimes didn't understand it, he made the time to go out in the woods, in the wilderness, to spend time with his father. Someone who's task-oriented or, or in a rush or in a hurry who didn't get it would say, you're wasting time. We have people that we need to connect to. We have numbers that we have to meet. And Jesus was never in a hurry. He was never in a rush. We're going to dive into what this looks like a little bit later on um, in the month. But Jesus made the time. In his three years, he knew that his impact wasn't in trying to have as many conversations and reach to the masses, but he knew that his time was better spent in showing and walking with 12. Investing in those 12, he knew that his impact would be much greater. That's why they're called disciples. It was a discipleship process of journeying, of doing life, of equipping these 12 because he knew the impact The mission that he was called here to do of his father would be much greater if he taught the 12 about Jesus, about himself, about God, about what it meant to walk the Christian journey and lead by example. And yet Jesus preached to the masses and and thousands were converted, but he probably could have had a lot more sermons, a lot more content if he was just worried about going from city to city instead of investing in people. Spending time and journeying with these individuals. We grow when we circle back with one another and we ask the difficult questions. Discipleship, journeying with a community, with one another, it's messy, it's difficult. But our mission at Forest Lake Church is to live the gospel. However that looks like on your journey, in your job, in your home, That is our mission, but your impact will drastically be greater if you invest in people and take the time to journey with people than it would be rather to be concerned about numbers. In in verse 22, um, we'll read that again. It says, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to to remain true to the faith saying we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Recently, we we had a baptism at the church, and I was having a conversation 
with this individual. And typically how these conversations go during baptism is, you know, we're not giving you a written test. Um, it's, it's not my theology of baptism, at least, maybe somebody else's. Um, but we ask a couple questions. Is one, do you love Jesus? You want to give your life to him? And kind of the follow-up question after we've gotten that affirmation and we know that someone is ready to give their life to Christ, uh, I ask them, so what is your expectation after baptism? What do you hope for and, and, and think will, will happen? And, and this person said, man, I just hope that all of my problems go away. I hope that everything is perfect. The things that stress me out, the issues that I'm, I'm worried about, I hope that, that God just takes them away. So I listen to this, and, and I don't want to be super negative. I don't want to crush the dreams that this person has. But I say, you know, I can't promise you that, and I don't think, um, I, don't, I hope that happens for you. But right after Jesus' baptism, he endures the hardest moments of his life. He is in the desert. He is tempted and tried. Right after baptism, I, I told her, I said, it may be the most difficult times of your life. And here's why. Because the devil knows that he's lost another one. He knows that he's lost the battle. And he's going to do everything he can. But you have victory in Jesus. It'd be great if baptism meant that. But we know that it doesn't. We know that rebirth doesn't mean all our problems go away. But in fact, we have someone to fight those problems. We have someone who will go in our place to fight those battles for us. And that's just because of the state of the world that we live in. It's our reality. We were never promised perfection and free of problems here, but we were promised a savior, a new plan, redemption, and one day, eternity. There is a real war for our hearts, for our decisions, the choices that we make. Temptation is real. The battle is real. The great controversy is a real thing. You can read the book. Read the book of Romans. You know the battle that's going on for each and every one of us. And it's an everyday battle that we face. But we know this. We knew this. We knew the plan before we made any commitment. There was no catch. We knew the journey would be hard, but we also knew that it would be worth it. Wouldn't it be great if we had kids, once we had our babies and they had no problems, no sickness, they slept great, they did good in school, got straight A's, they never had a scar on their body, they never shed a tear of sadness. We know that's not the reality but we know it's worth it. We know that going through that is worth it. The current world that we live in doesn't promise us that. It promises something else, an alternative reality. Jesus promises us something else, and there is no catch. He says, this is what it is. I'm here for you. And this is the same way that these leaders in the early church continue to disciple and love on their communities. It's going to be hard, but we're here for you. We know that the journey of discipling and bringing others to Christ is not linear, 
but sometimes it's circular. Sometimes it's going in reverse. It requires follow-up. The easy part is baptism. We, we can do that. I can do that all day. Sink, put people in the water and bring them back up. The hard part is journeying with, with those people. The hard part is each and every one of you that God has, God has placed people in your life to journey with. The hard part is continuing to be there, to lift each other up, to ask the difficult questions. Paul and Barnabas were in that position. They were in the position of struggle, of becoming new believers and having to fight the desires, the temptations, the falls. They say, we, we were there once. We remember, we know the value in follow-up and journeying with and not just leaving behind. Look at your own life and journey. How many of you can say that when you accepted Jesus, you didn't have any more problems? How many of you can say that everything was perfect, your finances were in order? So what's it, what's it look like? What does it look like to walk along and journey with one another? To live life in reverse, to give up of yourself and continue to invest in the people that God's put around you. It's being motivated to encourage. What does it look like to be an encourager? To ask those questions. To uplift when someone is feeling down. To constantly be on the gas and making sure that we are feeding each other. What does that look like? Understand your position as a leader. Each and every one of you, if you've given your life to Christ, you've been called to a specific calling a journey, a position of leadership, whether that's to your family, whether it's a job that you've been put in a high place of leadership, someone is always looking at you, towards you, for some kind of guidance. Whether it's one, 50, 500, 5,000, each of us have a commitment as Christ followers. We now enter into leadership. Each of us have been called to lead. Don't pass off what God has put on you. You feel that tug in your heart, God calling you to something greater, don't ignore it. You find yourself being constantly asked to help at church. and Maybe you come and, and you do that one thing and then you leave, but you are continually being asked. And maybe that's God telling you, I want you to take ownership of this one specific thing. What does it look like in your life to lead, to commit to the calling and not put it off and say, well, that's for someone else. What does it look like to journey with one another as a leader? If you've been a part of this process, a part of this journey, you've seen the process of how we've chosen elders and here in, in Acts 14, there is a choosing of elders as they go in reverse and as they continue to invest backwards into these communities, into these people, they begin to elect elders and they do it through prayer and fasting. This process was taken seriously. Choosing leaders who you were going to give a whole town to, a community to, they needed to be careful who 
they were choosing and to make sure that it was the will of God who they would put into these positions. If you were here a few months back, we elected new elders, and that was a long process. For over a year, we had been thinking about who we wanted as elders. So if you're an elder, you know we've prayed over you. There's elders currently here today uh, who are leaders at Warehouse at Forest Lake Church. And we've prayed over those names, and we've specifically assigned each of them areas of ministry to pray over. So if you do coffee, or if you're in the lobby as a greeter, or you do music, there is an elder that's assigned to you that you're going to get a phone call asking you those questions. As Pastor Mark said, how's your heart? How's your soul? Hey, I saw that you were, you were going through a difficult time. How's that, how's that, that relationship going with your spouse? Hey, I remember we talked about this specific loss last month. How are you doing with that? That is what it looks like to live a, a life of discipleship in reverse. There has been intention in who we choose and why we choose leaders in our church because we want to do it the right way, the way God has called us to, not just to be concerned about getting people to fill seats, but to journey with one another. This is the kind of intensity that the early church had. They weren't content with attending, moving on to the next week, living week by week, but to uplift each other each and every day. All of these things were done with intention. Are we setting each other up and the church to succeed for Christ? Are we setting up our church to be the most consistent and loving space for the community? And when all else is falling around, the church remains constant. Are we taking those steps? When everything else moves up and down, are we creating consistency in our lives and in our church? What does that even look like? What does it look like to create consistency in your life and, and avoid what everyone pretty much associates with their spiritual life as in the highs and in the lows? And there's nothing wrong with, with that, but can we be more consistent in our journey with Jesus? It means devoting yourself to constant prayer, asking God, who are, who are you calling me to reach out to? And maybe there's someone on your heart that God's put in, in your life, that you've encouraged once in your life, maybe last month, last year, and you haven't followed up with them. Maybe it's time for you to circle back, to follow up. We assume so many times that we're there just to provide immediate care for a friend, an individual, and we continue to move forward, assuming that they're just going to be fine. We do that so much after baptism. We baptize people. We assume they're good to go. In fact, that's when they need you the most. We've associated encouragement with a lack thereof. We either encourage or we don't. God did not intend our spiritual walk to be full of highs and lows just to fill us back up when we're empty. And that, that may happen, and it happens quite often more than I'd like to admit. A lot of you guys know that I... Um, I drive until my gas tank's completely empty. 
and you're laughing because you probably heard the story that I told a while back. Um, I just, I live by faith. That's what I, that's what I say. But I wonder that if sometimes my spiritual life is how I treat my gas tank, that I wait till it's empty to fill it back up. I drive it till I'm on fumes and I fill it back up. I don't think that's how we were designed to worship our creator. Many times we catch ourselves, we get caught up in the busyness of life that we forget to continue to fill ourselves up with the one thing that sustains us, and that is Jesus. If we are made in his image, in the image of God, and we know that God is constant, then we also have a calling on our life to be consistent, to be constant in our walk and our devotion with God and to one another, to uplift, to make sure that no one is on empty, no one that we have in our lives that we are held accountable to is running on empty. But to be the most consistent thing, community, church, person in a world that is suffering so much inconsistency. We are to be encouragers of one another in the highs and in the lows. To be constantly pursuing the things that elevate us and make us higher and higher. We were meant to live in reverse. It's the DNA of our church. Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the return of Jesus. Jesus himself has promised that he will reverse, he will live his life in reverse. He will circle back for the people that have called upon his name, that have given their life to him. It's in our DNA. We wait upon a return. Jesus knew, God knew the plan wasn't just to die on the cross and everything would be fine. There had to be a return. We've been promised that Jesus will circle back. But what does that look like in our life? Made in his image, being also called to live in reverse, to circle back. What does that look like? It takes hard work. It's messy. It takes a level of sacrifice, hard work. Are we ready to openly give our hearts to this community and to receive the love and accountability that creates that consistency? Are we willing to just take a break, stop the busyness of our life, think about the people that we need to circle back with? It may take time away from our schedule. We may have to put something off for next week, but who is God putting on your heart that you need to invest some time in, even if it disrupts your schedule? Who do you need to circle back with? Who do you need to go in reverse with, to follow up with, to make sure that they're not running on empty? And maybe God's put somebody on your heart today. And I hope that when you leave here, or as we sing our last song, that you send them a message and say, hey, I wanna meet up. I wanna see how you're doing. I wanna follow up with you, because that's what we're called to do. We're not called to provide a service to someone or just walk away and assume they'll, they'll be fine. They can handle it. They'll be okay. This is why God created community. It's what discipleship looks like, walking along with one another.
That's how we make the greatest impact. That's how we succeed together. I remember in fifth grade, I was at Fleece, and uh, I was really, I'm not, I'm not going to brag, but I kind of am. I was really good at basketball. I was. I can't play for my life now. And uh, Mr. Welch was our, our PE teacher and our coach, and we had to make this mile it's dumb mile time. I hated it. You had to make it at 7.30. I was a little overweight as a kid. I had high blood pressure. My sixth grade teacher had to, like, take my blood pressure every four hours. It was, it was, it was pretty intense. I could sprint all day, but more than 100 meters, it was rough. And I remember trying over and over, trying to get this mile run. And everyone else on the team, they were, I mean... I had a friend, uh, his name was Shelton. He used to go by Bebo at the time. And I remember we would, we would run, and he was so fast. And, I mean, he would be finished, and he'd be at the finish line just, like, encouraging me to get there because we, we were really good friends. And so this, this one time, it was pretty much my last chance because we, we were going um, to pick their team. And so he ran it with me. And I remember I was, I was, I knew I was close because I was so tired and everything in my whole body was just hurting me. And I remember taking these laps around the soccer field at Fleece and, and uh, that last lap, they had to end it on a hill. It's like, you couldn't end it like going downhill. You had to go uphill to finish this mile. And in the past, I would try and follow where he was going and try to keep up with him, and he would just, like, leave me. This time, though, as we're approaching it, he goes behind me, and he puts his arm, his hand on my back, and he pushes me to get through. Mr. Welch showed me the time. It was 7.29. I just made it. I was super excited and super thrilled because without that, I wasn't going to be on the team, but this fifth grader decided to lead from behind to circle back to return so that we both could succeed that's the Christian journey that's the walk that's the call it's not always leading from the front but returning back and finishing together it's the value of church that's the value of community but in order to do that something has to change one teacher, he summed it up really well in this post-Christian era that we exist in right now. Many argue that. He says this, all of us have a center point. Our center point is career. It's our sexuality. It's entertainment. For some, it's our marriage. For others, it's our kids. For many, it's our athletic prowess it's all sorts of things all of these things become our center point but Jesus Jesus is like a hobby we really enjoy him but we just don't have the time that we wish we had for him we have center points we come back to we are obsessed with things with work with meeting goals with climbing a ladder with moving forward and when Jesus becomes a hobby, we, we love it. We love him. We love coming to church. But if I don't have time, it's unfortunate. 
But for true discipleship to flourish, Jesus must be our center point, the one that we keep coming back to. If you forget everything else that I've said, remember this. Jesus has to be the center point that we come back to every day. A church in action, a Christ follower in action has Jesus at the center point, the one that we return to, that we come back to, that we remember who paid it all. So, is Jesus the center of your life? Or is he just a hobby? Is he someone that you, if you have time for, you'll do it and you'll enjoy it? Or do you drop everything for that? Do you sacrifice for him? Do you listen to that voice that tells you, circle back, reach out, go out of your way? When Jesus is your center point, selfishness takes a back seat. We all struggle with it, whether you want to accept it or not. The baptism part's easy. The follow-up, the circle back is hard. My prayer today is that that one person that you need to come back to comes to your mind and then you reach out to them. And for many of you who can't honestly say that Jesus is your center point, my prayer is that he becomes your everything. The one that you give it all for. The one that you return to. The one who sustains you and fills you. May he be the center of your life.